Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It is Thursday, the 19th of May. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. A few headlines to lead us off in this hour. Oh, it was another bad day for U.S. equity markets yesterday. The stock market lost more than 1,000 points. Um, Driving the loss was Target. Target stock had its worst day since uh, the crash in 1987. Target shares lost 25% of their value in yesterday's trading. That is um, that is really extraordinary. And so there are likely people uh, around you today um, for whom that is like a genuine blow to their uh, retirement savings. I mean, on and on and on. So you should be mindful of that today. Um, recognize we, uh, you know, we're not storing up things in barns Um or places that can be thieved away. We're storing up treasures in heaven, but we're also reliant upon the assets uh, here in this world. And so I just want to recognize that today. What is going up uh, would be gas prices. According to AAA, the national average cost of a gallon of regular unleaded gasoline is now $4.58, nearly 59 cents, 4.589. I really don't know why gas prices have that like extra hay penny out there, right? Like, what, what is that about? Why, why does it go to three digits? And why is the third digit always a nine? Is it ever not a nine? Hmm. Okay, somebody can do a little research. Get the research department going on that and text me at 877-933-2484. Why do gas prices always go out to that, you know, third decimal point? Um, and why is it always a nine? Okay, inquiring minds want to know. All right, so what does that mean? $4 and nearly 59 cents means that a 20-gallon fill-up is going to cost you more than $91. That's a lot of dough. That's more than a 50% increase in the cost of a gallon of gas in one year. And the forecast is not good. Prices at the pump are going to continue to rise. According to J.P. Morgan, prices could uh, rise another 37% by August, hitting $6.20 a gallon by Labor Day. I mean, that's, I, I don't even, I, I'm rarely speechless. And um, yeah, <clears throat> there you go. On the baby formula front, the president of the United States has invoked the Defense Production Act to address the nationwide baby formula shortage. He has directed the federal government to use Defense Department aircraft to pick up baby formula from overseas that meets the U.S. health and safety standards. U.S. manufacturers are projecting another six to eight weeks before a restoration of their capacity and distribution um, for U.S.-produced formula. So there you go. The end is in sight in terms of the baby formula crisis. President Biden also hit the pause button on the recently formed Disinformation Board project, um, uh, and the House of Representatives passed a bill um, that would require the cooperation and information sharing across government agencies seeking to identify and stop domestic terrorism before it happens. I lift that up 
because it would be really good for um, the agencies of the federal government to work together, cooperate and share information. It would not be good if what we're talking about is uh, is a further invasion into the privacy of Americans and some kind of surveillance. And so that's the conversation that's being had when you hear reference to the domestic terrorism uh, legislation. That's that's what's at the root of that conversation. And finally, on our headlines, the U.S. Embassy reopened in Kiev uh, as the Red Cross processes hundreds of Ukrainian fighters who had been under siege in that steel plant in Mariupol. So good news in Kiev, the reopening of the U.S. Embassy, things actually getting back to, quote, relative normal in uh, Ukraine's capital city. But um, in the southeastern part of Ukraine, um, the Russians are... uh, I would say, securing their victory in the city of Mariupol. So we will return to headlines and bring the mind of Christ to bear in just a moment. I want to talk with you about UFOs. Are they real? And does it matter? What 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 does the government know that we don't know? Mm-hmm. What do we know that the government doesn't know? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Um, UFOs. All right. I don't think we're supposed to be calling them that. Uh, Unidentified aerial phenomenon, a.k.a. UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Um, First public hearing on the topic uh, in terms of the U.S. Congress since 1966. Here's the lead at at Axios. Congress held its first public hearing on unidentified flying objects. Uh, They didn't. They didn't. They actually held their first hearing on a report on unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAPs, not UFOs, UAPs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a database tracking unidentified object sightings, and it has grown to roughly 400 reports. That is according to the U.S. government. Sightings are, quote, frequent and continuing. The report concluded that uh, UAPs do not pose a current threat to national security, but could pose a threat to national national security. However, they found, quote, no evidence of aliens from the incidents. Here's the challenge. If there if if, if these aren't alien air, well, I mean, you know, like two challenges, right? There's a challenge if they are alien aircraft. There's a challenge if they are not alien aircraft. And the challenge if they are not alien aircraft is that the technology being demonstrated um, by these unidentified aerial phenomenon um, witnessed by the U.S. military uh, inside of U.S. airspace, uh, some, sometimes very sensitive U.S. airspace, um, we don't know what country in the world or what private entity in the world has such technology. And we certainly don't have such technology. And we also don't know how to defend ourselves against it. So there you go. That's um, on the UFO front. And you say to yourself, well, what, uh, what and how should Christians think about this? Can Christians believe in uh, in UFOs? It's not about believing in UFOs or not believing in UFOs, believing in alien life or not believing in alien life. I mean, we all know we're not alone in the universe, right? I mean, God is in the universe. I actually heard a person yesterday on a secular radio broadcast um, where the host was asking, you know, just for, you know, sort of people's sense of this. And one guy called in and said, I know this is going to sound very childish, but like, what if they're angels? What, what if we've... 
what if we finally like just have the ability to see what was you know heretofore invisible um you know there's lots of uh, of things that people might say are we more comfortable suggesting that it that it could be angels than we are suggesting that it could be alien life we we're more comfortable with that um i mean only if you think angels are all good i mean i'm not more comfortable with it if they're fallen angels you get my point right like there is a there's an opportunity here for us to engage in this conversation I don't think it's i don't think it's a question of um Believing or not believing in alien life. I think it's a question of believing or not believing in the reality and the sovereignty of God, who is the creator of all things. And understanding that the universe is a whole lot bigger than um, just the part of it that we inhabit. Um, And understanding that, you know, God's creative capacity goes far beyond um, what you and I see and hear and taste and experience in everyday life. All right. uh, Another story. Um, You know that there's a massive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Yes, you're aware of this? Well, we're going to talk next week uh, with our, you know, smarty pants uh, science science friend, Heather, um, about this. But I wanted to tee this up for you because um, part of what is happening is that you're seeing headlines and you're actually hearing, like, recordings of the black hole singing. Now, if the black hole is singing... What is it saying? I mean, this gets back, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does it, does it make a crashing sound? Well, yes. I mean, even if there's no one there to hear it, the, you know, the tree makes a sound when it hits the ground. The black hole has been singing for eons. I mean, technically, right, forever. Um, and yet we don't really know what it's saying. Just to consider that for a moment. Just to consider that there is something that has been singing since the beginning of time that human beings have not heard nor heeded. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, does that sound at all like um, the reality that God has been making himself known and speaking and humanity has been ignoring the sound of his voice and not paying attention to it and not seeking to understand it? I just think this is a really good opportunity for us to get God back into a particular conversation of the day, particularly when people start talking about Uh, these primordial black holes, and that they were, quote, born at the dawn of time. If something is born, if time dawned, um, what was there before that? And it's not a what, but a who. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about the creator God who is preexistent of all things. All right. I got a few more headlines to cover with you in just a moment, including um, Happy. Happy is an Asian elephant, and Happy's case is back in court. The question being Decided by a court in New York, is Happy the Elephant a person and do the rights of a human being? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, based on the text line, which remember you can text me at 877-933-2484. Based on the text line, people are super interested in having a conversation about... uh, the possibility of extraterrestrial life and the reality of the universe and everything in it. So, yeah, we're definitely circling back around to the black hole conversation um, and the uh, the the space of space conversation next week with uh, Heather Zeigert when she is here. So just letting you know, um, I'm putting a I'm putting a pin in that conversation and we will definitely come back to it. All right. Um, I want to talk with you about happy. Happy is an Asian elephant. 
I'm pretty sure we talked about Happy the Asian Elephant back in 2019 when this story first um, uh, first appeared. Lawyers representing an elephant. This goes back to uh, to 2019. Lawyers representing an elephant uh, argued in a New York court um, that their uh, client be considered a person. A fresh attempt to upend human dominance over uh, over the designation of personhood. So what um, what the lawyers in 2019 were attempting to do was to say that human beings do not have an exclusive hold on the legal definition of persons or what it means to be a person. And so in New York, if you are designated a person, then the rights of a person must be respected. And that is the argument that is being made on behalf of this elephant named Happy. So um, it is important to note that her um, legal team is not a legal team that she hired, right? These are people who these are people who are self-appointed to serve as advocates. They've they have decided that Happy would be more happy if she were designated as a person and more or less set free to make her own choices. Yeah, just just for just a moment. I know. I know. Happy currently lives. She's been living for 45 years in a in a zoo. She has uh she has space, but she doesn't have the kind of space that these human beings would prefer her to have because they want her to be able to make her, quote, own autonomous decisions. They want Happy to be regarded as a person of, uh, of free will and uh, to uh, have her be recognized um, as a person with rights in the state of New York. In 2019, the conversation um, included input from PETA, the People for the Ethical uh, Treatment of Animals. And at that point in time, the representative of PETA made the argument that a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. And that sentence or declaration or statement tells you almost everything that you need to know about this debate. This was PETA's position at the time. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Um, and you say to yourself, well, surely there aren't a lot of people who think this way. Oh, contraire. Um, Peter Singer is an ethicist at the university, at Princeton University. And um, he, he absolutely, in, in 2019 and actually earlier than that and continues to today, argues that because some pigs are smarter than some people, that based on intelligence alone, those pigs should be given preferential treatment and rights superior to the rights of human beings who are not as smart as pigs. So how do we as Christians engage in this conversation? I actually have a whole chapter on this in Speak the Truth, um, because this is an ongoing conversation, and it is going to be a conversation for which you and I need to be equipped. What makes a person a person? What makes a person a person? Understanding the distinctives between human beings, people, and animals is actually essential to understanding uh, the meaning of not only who we are, but how then we ought to live. So at the core of this issue is the question of who is a person and what it means to be a person. To give animals the same rights that human beings have to extend um, to them personhood is actually to grant to animals an authority that is not ours to grant. God, in the creation mandate, actually told us there is a difference in kind, not just a difference in 
degree, but a difference in kind between mankind, humankind, and the animals. And he set man, mankind, over the animal kingdom. And so this is a worldview conversation. And, and you can't, you know, you can't use the ranking of intelligence um, as as a measure here. Um, dolphins, chimps, apes, pigs, elephants, in some cases, are considered, quote unquote, more intelligent than some human beings. But the human beings are still human and the animals are still animals. Mankind is a kind. There's a difference of kind, not simply a difference in degree. Here's the key moral test. If you just want to just boil it down to one question. Here's the key moral test. Who gets to eat whom? And you're going to say to yourself, that, that's a terrible question. Yes, but it's a basic moral principle. The basic moral principle is persons don't eat persons. Persons don't eat persons. It's a very basic universal moral principle. And so the key moral test is, you know, who gets to eat whom? And you're going to say, well, this is going to move us toward veganism. No, there is actually a personhood claim to be made here. And there is another side of this conversation. I, I know that some of you, your mind has already gone here. The other side of this conversation, if we are at the place where we are ready to regard some animals as human, as persons, are we also ready to regard some humans as non-persons? That is, at its basis, the entire abortion debate. We are regarding some humans as non-persons. And yes, in our culture, at the Supreme Court level in the state of New York, we are currently uh, debating the case of Happy the Elephant, who may be legally regarded at the end of this process as a person. Let me boil it down to this. If we were to raise animals to the exalted place of human beings and and think that by doing that we've made things better, all we've really done is stripped humanity of its of its rightful dignity. You actually reduce the status of the human being. You don't you don't actually raise the status of the animal. You simply reduce human beings to animals. I guess I'll take Romans 1 here. Um, when, we, when we lose the knowledge of God, when we exchange the knowledge of the Creator, once we've confused the knowledge of the order of things, we lose the knowledge of ourselves. We actually forget who we are. All right, a lot more on this. But again, reduce it down to this. From PETA's position, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. From God's position, human beings are made in his image, distinctively so, different in kind from the animals. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. If you live in or around Reading, Connecticut, uh, there is a historic landmark up for auction. The bidding starts January the 6th. It's uh, recognized by the National Register of uh, Registry of Historic Places. 
Um, yeah, and it's formerly a church. Say to yourself, hmm. In uh, in Torrington, Connecticut, the St. Mary's Church and School is also up for auction. In Detroit, Michigan, the Woods Cathedral. In New Orleans, Louisiana, a historic church on Napoleon Avenue. Uh, in downtown Cincinnati. Um, in St. Louis, Missouri, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah, I'm just scrolling through the website. I'm just scrolling through churches for sale in America. Where have all the churches gone? We're going to talk next with Cheryl Mann Bacon. She has a special project by that title. Where have all the churches gone? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Cheryl Mann Bacon joins us now. Uh, she serves with the Christian Chronicle. She's a correspondent there. For more than 20 years, she was the chair of the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication at Abilene Christian University. Cheryl, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. I understand you have a dog named Pepper, which, you know, since you are bacon and your dog is Pepper, my mouth is now watering for brown <laughs> sugar pepper bacon. That would be marvelous. <laughs> Right. I feel like you you should be a regular morning show guest just by that combo. So, um, yeah. So talk with us about this project. It's more than just an article. This is a this is a project at ChristianChronicle.org. Where have all the churches gone? So talk about the inspiration behind um, this series of articles and some of the things you learned along the way. Yeah, we thank you, Carmen. We are only in about month three of what we hope will be about a seven-month project. A year or more ago, I was involved in two or three different conversations about churches closing. One was about a a small uh, Black church that had closed, and um, another uh, church nearby had, had taken over its property, that was a, a disturbing series of facts, but in, in the midst of the pandemic pandemic with limited travel options, I did everything that I could do in online research and um, finally just kind of set that aside, but it just kept bugging me about, you know, what would have happened to that little church. Uh, then I heard about some other churches that had um, approached the point of maybe closing and other nearby congregations that they weren't necessarily on the best terms with began saying, well, what if this church were to go back to the organization that originally planted it or something? And again, I was like, this is not how this is supposed to work. And meanwhile, we see all of the national publicity and the research from Pew and others about the decline in the number of churches and in church attendance and the number of people who identify as religious. And so all of those conversations kind of led the Christian Chronicle to take a look at least at how the issue is affecting churches of Christ, which is our audience. The Christian Chronicle, for your listeners who are not aware, is an international publication um, for and about churches of Christ. Uh, The topic is much broader than that, but for our audience, that's been my focus. And so I have begun um, in Tennessee Uh, looking at a a tiny little church near Manchester called the Ragsdale Church of Christ. 
that uh, had dwindled down to less than 10 people. And I was with them on their very last Sunday and for a big gospel singing that they had that lots of people came to because everyone who had had a family member there or uh, had ever attended there came for that last day, um, have spent some time this past month in San Diego at a church that was as different from the one in Ragsdale as it could possibly be. It's a, a small church that is in the process of kind of reinventing itself, but unlike the very conservative and elderly little church in, in Manchester, this one was in San Diego. It was still very small, only about 35 people, but very diverse. It was instrumental, which you may be aware is outside of the uh, norm uh, in the traditions of the Churches of Christ. Uh, just a very, very different experience. And they're in the process of trying to reinvent themselves. They have sold their building, which they no longer needed because they didn't have the membership to support it, and hope to work with some other nonprofits to plant churches in the San Diego area over the next 10 years. Yeah, so some of the conversation about where have all the churches gone is a conversation about um, redevelopment and replanting. Um, some of it is a conversation about uh, sort of the natural life cycle of a congregation. I mean, when we read the um, the the churches listed in the New Testament, they don't all still exist as identifiable congregations today. So there are life cycles of of congregations. But I think that in the cases of churches that you know they have shut down um, when they still had members, part of what you've been exploring is where do the people go. So in the question about where have all the churches gone, have you discovered anything about where the people go when a church closes? You know, I think that is something that probably varies a little bit by denomination. Um, one of the scholars that I have talked with and read in conjunction with this is Stanley Granberg. Um, he believes that within Churches of Christ, probably the uh, more liberal or progressive members leave first, looking for something that's that's more relevant um, and then leadership will react to that, uh, and as a result, some of the more conservative members will leave. Uh, in our case, often some of those early progressive members that leave may wind up in uh, independent church, Christian churches, in community churches, that sort of thing. Uh, the more conservative ones that leave in the second wave tend to try to find something even more conservative within the churches of Christ. And the ones that are left are what he tends to call um, abundant grace needed folks, people who have physical limitations or other kinds of limitations that will just stay until the doors have to close because mm -hmm. there's simply no longer enough people to sustain the congregation financially or even spiritually and emotionally. Um, but it is kind of a mystery where the people go. Uh, what we know from national statistics is that a lot of people just go home, that they don't find another place, that they um, discontinue their affiliation uh, with any kind of a religious body. Yeah, that is so sad and so tragic. I I remember um, fielding a phone call. I was I was trying to put a specific date on it, and as close as I can get, I think I I'm thinking it was 2007. Might have been a little later than that. Um, so 15 ish years ago, fielding a phone call from an elderly woman in Dallas, and um, she said where um, where are we supposed to go on Sunday? And I was serving an organization at the time that had the name of her denomination in the name of our organization. So we were not the denomination, 
but we were and you know we we had the same name in our name as her denomination and so for whatever reason she called us <clears throat> and i said well ma'am i'm you know i don't exactly know what you're asking um where did you go to church last sunday because i'm thinking maybe this is just an elderly woman who's confused and she Bye. gave me the name of her church where she had worshiped on the prior sunday and she said I've that's where I have worshiped every Sunday of my entire life. I've never been in any other church. And I said, well, ma'am, then is there a reason you're not going to go there this coming Sunday? And she said, oh, I mean, you closed the church. And I thought, well, I didn't close the church. So now we got to get to the root of this. But anyway, the denomination of which she was a part um, had closed their church, like showed up with some representatives from their denominational body and held a service or, you know, it, during which they closed the church mm-hmm. with no accommodation made, with no counsel to these older members, with no plan for what they were going to do the following Sunday. So I said, let me do a little legwork and I'll get back to you. So I did a little research. It didn't take much, you know, to find out exactly what had happened. I then reached out to a healthy, vibrant congregation close enough by that I thought and big enough, like right, big enough to accommodate the special needs that were going to exist of these people, because that's exactly what you're pointing to. That last group has some very special needs um, and they're going to just need to be blessed and accommodated by a healthy congregation. So anyway, I reached out and these guys uh, said, oh, gosh, absolutely. Tell her to meet in the church parking lot where they were last Sunday. We will send a bus from our church and pick them all up bring them to our church, and then that way they'll know where to go and we can get them, you know, integrated and da-da-da. Well, so that's what happened. But it only happened because she happened to call a person who knew a person who would make a phone call and make something happen. But, like, that needs to happen for people. we got to be concerned about where the last people are going to go after the last Sunday when the doors are closed for the last time. Yeah, I think it really is challenging. And, you know, different denominations address this in different ways the um it within some it it looks exactly like you described it's a decision that's made um at a district level or synod level or something like that uh churches of christ are i would say notoriously autonomous there is no over um writing body each congregation is entirely autonomously governed and so it, it's an internal local decision to make um when that happens and very often it's just simply a matter of there aren't enough people to to do the things that are necessary to sustain maybe they mm-hmm. can't afford a preacher and there's no one left who can preach maybe they have expenses operating expenses that they can't meet um even though they may have substantial real estate resources, which, you know, one of the churches that I mentioned a while ago wound up selling their building, paying off all of their debts and had over $3 million left. I know of a church in Dallas that still had several hundred members left, but they were in a building that was built for 2000 and they sold their property. Um, and through a, a non-disclosure agreement, couldn't tell me the price but it was on one of the, the intersection of two of the busiest freeways in Dallas. They mm. sold it to another church and they said that they had, would have millions left to invest in missions and community outreach after they had paid off any outstanding obligations. So, so that um, really odd situation where people have lots of resources in real estate, but can't afford to meet their monthly expenses 
factors into this on a, on a pretty frequent basis. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. Well, the Churches of Christ aren't alone in this. Um, I was recently looking at statistics for the Presbyterian Church USA, um, and year over year over year, for, I mean, many, many years in a row, they've been dissolving on average 100 congregations a year. Um, and when you're going to dissolve 100 congregations a year across the country, you know, that's two in every state. Um, and and you eventually you're going to whittle your congregational influence down um, to just a few large, healthy congregations. Um, and that means that there's just going to be a lot of places across the country that no longer have, let's say, a Church of Christ or no longer have uh, a, a PCUSA congregation or on and on and on. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't churches being planted um, and there are churches certainly growing in terms of their uh, their influence. We're going to continue our conversation with Cheryl Bacon in just a moment. She's a correspondent for the Christian Chronicle, and they're engaged in um, a really uh, expansive look at where all the churches are going. So where have the churches gone? This conversation continues in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Little country church on the edge of town. Continuing our conversation um, with Cheryl Bacon, we're talking about shrinking congregations across the country, the disappearance of churches from some of our communities, I'm wondering if you live in a community where churches have closed. If so, you want to give me a little uh, shout out or testimony about that on the text line, 877-933-2484. Maybe you're a part of a congregation that closed its doors. Um, if so, love to know why. 877-933-2484 is the number to text me. Love to hear your your story, your testimony. Um, Cheryl, when um, when we think about the influence of the pandemic, one of the conversations that we had right at the outset of uh, of COVID-19, when the shutdowns just began, I remember a conversation um, uh, with um, David Kenneman from the Barna Group, and he said, you know, there's going to be people who blame COVID shutdowns. They blame their church clo- closings on COVID shutdowns. And then he said this, those churches had pre-existing conditions that were exacerbated by COVID-19. So they're not closing necessarily because of the pandemic. Um, they had pre-existing conditions that, you know, ultimately proved fatal. What would you say um, you have witnessed, your research has demonstrated about the effect of the pandemic um, on churches making the decision to close? Well, it, it's exactly what he said. I, I don't think that the pandemic has caused any congregations to close. It may have just uh, prompted them to close a little more quickly. Uh, I haven't, I haven't encountered a single church that was healthy and growing and vibrant and reaching out to tell the story of Jesus in their community that suddenly closed because of the pandemic. It just hasn't happened. But rather churches that had been shrinking in some cases for decades uh, had been on the decline hit a point where they couldn't sustain any longer when that was accelerated. And so, well, the, the church in, in Tennessee, um, they told me they probably would have closed a couple of years earlier had they not gotten um, kind of an odd windfall uh, inheritance from um, a man who had died many, many years earlier and had left some money to some small churches. And it was just enough cash to sustain them for a couple of years. Um, they were not going to be you know, healthy and vibrant were it not for the pandemic. Um, 
another church that I have spent some time with, um, while their in-person attendance continued to shrink during the pandemic, and, and they were in a state where there was a mandatory shutdown for a while, um, they now have an online presence that is much larger um, than anything they had prior to the pandemic and and are seeing that as a means of continuing outreach and are doing some innovative things there. So no, I don't I don't think anybody can blame the pandemic for the churches that are closing. Um, you know the churches were sick and on life support before that and uh, COVID just was the final straw. All right. I want to have a little bit of a different um, conversation with you because you spent so much, so many years um, serving at Abilene Christian University. Love to have a, a conversation with you, encouraging people listening to enter into journalism um, as a as a career to study at a Christian university, make that intentional choice um, to, you know, to study in a place where their worldview as a Christian is going to be supported um, just, you know, uh, m- make either one or both of those uh, arguments that you want to make today. Well, those are both pretty easy cases for, t- for me to make. I spent 39 years doing that, um, 20 as, as the department chair. You know, recently I had a chance to um, hear Jerry Mitchell, who you may be familiar with, who is a award-winning uh, journalist out of Mississippi. His work a number of years ago led to the um, arrest and conviction of um, several uh, clan members that had had um, for unsolved murders from the 60s. Um, he's a great Christian man, and he was asked the same question. He said, you know, um, journalists and Christians are, are doing the same thing. They're engaged in the pursuit of truth. And so there, there is no conflict um, for a Christian to become a journalist, there is <clears throat> no greater background for a journalist than to be a Christian who understands and, and values the pursuit of truth. So I, I see that as one of the most important things that we can do. Now, I will say that for years, when I gave tours to students and parents through our facilities and talked about our program and encouraged them to come there, I would occasionally be asked what I kind of thought was a gotcha question, you know, someone saying, so what's the difference? You know, how are you going to make them into Christian journalists? And I said, well, let me begin by saying I have no desire to make anyone into a churchy journalist, that um, I just want them to be the very best journalist they can be. And their motivation for that is that they are a Christian and they seek to do the very best work they can do in every aspect of their life. Um, Certainly, they bring a Christian worldview to their work. But most importantly, that is a view of the truth um, as supreme. And so I, I don't see a conflict. I'm so sorry and so sad that many people do. It is true. And I, I spent most of my career sandwiched in a place where um, much of the world saw Christians as the enemy. And most Christians saw media as the enemy. And I absolutely reject both of those premises. All right, say that say that last part again because I I am with you. I as a Christian do not view the media as an enemy and yet I mean I'm a member of the media at some level and so when we have these conversations um and when we paint with a really broad brush and you know and say that you know the media is the enemy um or the media says of Christians that Christians are the enemy like right we have drawn lines in quite unusual places. 
Well, yeah. And the thing is, I think that anytime we talk about groups of people, whether we're talking about Christians or media or Americans or Republicans or Democrats or socialists or people by nationality, and, and we paint a group by a, a broad brush, we've just begun from a very damaging place. Mm. I used to I used to do a little um, local workshop for nonprofit organizations called Reporters or People Too, and would begin by reminding them that when you're dealing with a person from media, and in this, this case, it was always local, um, remember that you are not dealing with some mysterious person with superpowers. You're dealing with somebody who has to mow their grass and take their kids to school and pay their taxes and, you know, occasionally has a heart attack and, you know, other kinds, all of the maladies of life are, are their maladies as well. These are just people and their job is to gather information and tell stories. That's what they do for a living. And, and I often remind people who want to paint the media in some nefarious fashion that these are just individuals and, you know, you, you, you can slam attorneys as all being crooked or doctors as all being greedy, but when you have chest pains, you go to a doctor and, mm -hmm. and you need to sue someone, or if someone takes advantage of you, you may need to call a lawyer. And so when you need information, you need to go to the people who know how to go out and collect information and tell, tell good stories. That's so helpful. That's so great. Um, I love talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, give Pepper a little scratch behind the ears. That's Cheryl Bacon. You can find her at the Christian Chronicle. You can find the series that we were talking about today, this special project, Where Have All the Churches Gone? at christianchronicle.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. I want you to be a blessing, be a person who recognizes that you are blessed and then go out and be a blessing this weekend. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Remember, people don't need another piece of our mind. They need the very peace of Christ. And you're just the person to give it to them. Have a great weekend. Oh, no, it's only Thursday. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.